All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is my good buddy and friend and brother, Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man? Not much. And just to clear things up, Josh and I aren't like actual brothers. I mean, we're brothers in Christ, but we're, you know, he's not my brother. Come on, man. Why would you have to but, ruin that? <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I would argue that you being my brother in Christ is a deeper relationship than you know just if you were just like my earthly brother but we didn't have that you know we didn't have mm, okay you know, christ-like siblingship I, hey how about that i just made up a phrase <laughs> you gotta coin it now before someone else takes it yeah trademark some mega church pastor writes a book about it <laughs> christ-like siblingship i just i just trademarked it so that's trademarked. You can't take it unless you want to buy it for me for five million dollars. You can do that. Ooh, five million. Um, that's pretty big. It's, it's a big one. Are you gonna well, share Josh, wealth? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll share it around. Why not? I only need a little bit. I just, you know, I, I like drums and guitars, but you know, like those don't cost millions of dollars. So I'll just need some, and then I can give the rest away. Bro, if you so. pay off my student debt, we'll be we'll be yeah. Gucci. If I ever, Josh, I, I'm I'm saying this on air so people can hear it. If I ever win the lottery and I have millions of dollars laying around, I will pay your student debt. Woohoo! And I'll pay mine <laughs> as well. And my wife's um, <laughs> because it'll need to get paid. Gosh, before we get started, I have to, I have to give a shout out on air. I'm wearing okay. a special t-shirt. Uh, you are. I love the t-shirt. Yeah. Real loco Marine. So I don't know if Danny listens to this podcast, but I know Sonny does and Sonny is helping Danny out there for a while. Um, but Danny Rodriguez, we love you, man. And we hope you're doing well. So yeah, we're, we're, I'm wearing your shirt because I love it. <laughs> Thanks for helping me fix my car that one time. Danny. And <laughs> me too. The same exact thing, but also just being a cool dude. Truth, truth, <laughs> truth, truth. All right, man. Well, perhaps we should, we should introduce another cool person that is hanging yes. out with us today. And that person is Kelly Nikandeha. Kelly, how's it going? Well, it's going as well as it can be in these uh, perilous times, but uh, it is good to be with you this morning. I can say that with certainty. 
Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for, for hopping on. Listeners, we just have to tell you how, how awesome Kelly's been. We first time we scheduled a time to talk with her, I did a dumb thing and scheduled two interviews at the same time. <laughs> so Kelly was gracious enough to move it. And then with all the craziness with like COVID-19 and, and everything going on, we had to ask Kelly if we could move it once again. And yes, she said yes, and it was awesome. And so now we're finally here getting to chat. We're excited. <laughs> so Kelly, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. It's good to be here. Well, and Kelly, we have a, a question that we like to ask every one of our guests. And so this is the first question we're going to ask. So I want you to know this is a really big deal to Josh and I. Um, I hope... I hope I'm going to guess the person you're going to, or the, the thing you're going to say, but it, we'll see. Um, who is your favorite ice hockey team? <laughs> oh, come on. I'm so <laughs> embarrassed to say I don't have one. <laughs> Are you going to hit the eject button now and I'm, no, I'm out? <laughs> no, no. You, you, you'd be surprised to know that we've had Canadian guests that have said the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's so. true. Doesn't yeah. that say something about the nature of ice hockey? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know what? It's a really great icebreaker, pun intended. Uh -huh. Well uh -huh. done, Marty. Uh -huh. you, can tell Marty you can tell Marty's the dad because he makes dad <laughs> jokes like Very that. Good. But, we, but we, you know, Josh and I love hockey, um, but also like we, we recognize that we're that we are different than many people out there. You know, we could say like, who's your, who's your favorite football or basketball team? And we would probably get, you know, a an mm -hmm. exponentially greater, you know, legitimate answer from people. <laughs> um, but we, we just, we love hockey. And so right. we, we feel like that's, that comes so out of left field for people. So um, <laughs> that's why we like to ask it. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, well, but Kelly, you know, just tell us a little bit about, about who you are. What's your story? What's your faith upbringing? Uh, what, what kind of work do you do? Sure. Well, um, I mean, the very, very short uh, answer to what I do. Um, so I'm married to um, Claude, who is from Burundi, little mm -hmm. tiny country in East Africa. Um, and so uh, my husband and I do community development work in Burundi. Uh, so he really does the front line, you know, actual developing part of the work. Um, and I'm kind of his theologian in residence. Uh, so I'll read from the text and he'll read the social context and we push each other to figure out then how do we really embody that in our development work. Um, we've been, been doing that in Burundi for over 12 years. Um, and so I live back and forth between Burundi and the States. And when I am not helping him uh, with our development work, I am writing. Uh, and so that's probably the reason you have me on today in part, uh, is uh, the second book that I've written on the women of Exodus. Um, but I'm also an adopted kid um, who adopted kids as well. Uh, so, you know, deep in the adoption narrative myself and a mom and a wife of 18 plus years and uh, a liberation theologian and, you know, that, those are just some of the ways that I describe myself. <laughs> and, you know, I just, we don't always do this, but I, I want to ask a follow-up question. And, and I don't, uh, just because Burundi is such a, um, like a, an unknown place, yeah. I would say. Yes. So for me, um, I'm a, a, like a legitimate coffee snob. Um, <laughs> oh, so, then you know Burundi. So that's, and, but I was going to say, that's probably the only way that I know Burundi. Um, 
if if it's possible, can you give us like a 30 second, 60 second, <laughs> like, which I know is probably totally being unfair to the, to the history of Burundi, but you know, just what is the culture like there and the work that you sure. do and like, and how, how does that impact people? Sure. Well, I mean, so Burundi is uh, typically when you look at the UN um, and the way that they talk about developed countries, Burundi is usually in the bottom five or the bottom three, you know, like it used to be even further down than that before we had the Iraq, you know, the, the, our work, our, our work uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but Burundi is always at the bottom in terms of development. Uh, mm. And so a very needy country by those kind of standards. Uh, and it's really been rife with tribal conflict. Um, so over 30 years of uh, civil war between the, Hutsi, the Hutus and the Tutsis, which are the same two groups that we saw in the genocide in Rwanda, which mm, people yeah. may be more familiar with. Um, but Burundi, the next door neighbor to Rwanda, has had the same tribal dynamics um, and has lost this many lives over 30 years as opposed to the 100 days of the genocide in Rwanda. Uh, so it's a it's a place with lots of poverty and lots of civil unrest, and yet it is this beautiful little country, uh, just green. They call it the Switzerland of of Africa. Green hills everywhere, a mm. huge beautiful lake, right in the middle, uh, Lake Tanganyika. Um, the most amazing drummers in the world. If you ever get a chance to see Burundian drummers, um, astounding. Um, and of course, their coffee region is, you know, every now and then, you know, Starbucks has their reserve coffee and often it's a Burundian blend. Um, just amazing coffee. They do not know decaf, by the way. You get <laughs> no. coffee in Burundi. There is no such thing as decaf. It is just coffee, which means yeah. it's just fully caffeinated. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I could say that every time I've had uh, Burundian coffee, it always has uh, it's like I have a friend, uh, his name's Seth, and he would say that Burundian coffee is his favorite. If, if he, mm. anywhere he goes, if yeah. he's buying a bag of coffee and he sees a Burundi, he, that's what he's going to get. He doesn't even have to look yeah. at the bag. He didn't have to think about it. That's what he's going to get. Um, yeah. And that's just his favorite. Um, and yeah. I'm a drummer also. So to hear that. Oh, sounds, yes, you would love the drummers there. Amazing. It sounds like maybe I just need to, you know, get on a plane tomorrow and head on over and, and enjoy. Josh, you, you, you could join me. Maybe we could go together. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> I will make you a deal. And my husband and I do this often. So you can take us up on it. If you can get yourself to Burundi, we can meet you at the airport. And uh, we always have a couple of guest rooms in our home. If you can get there, we would be willing to host you. And boy, we will show you Burundian drummers and amazing Burundian coffee and uh, some other great things. I mean, obviously, as I said, we do development work. So, um, you know, we do several different things. But one of them is we run a bank uh, oh, cool. to, to get the 97% of the unbanked Burundians uh, to help them have access to banking services and to grow their businesses. And so we have over 40,000 people. Um, oh, that we wow. you know, that are a member of our eight different branches on top of having a trade school and an elementary school and a health clinic and it's quite an operation my husband is quite a uh, quite a force on the Burundian front <laughs> but if you get there we will host you that you guys sound awesome. like amazing people <laughs> yeah straight up. <laughs> we have a lot of fun I'll say that yeah that yeah. sounds awesome <laughs> that sounds awesome um 
so yeah, and I love too, like you you weaved stories of your experience um, in Brundy and all that kind of stuff through your book, which is just so beautiful. Um, I really appreciated that about it. Um, and I know you had already said the name of your book, but I want to say it again, just in case people missed it. So today we're talking about Defiant, what the women of Exodus teach us about freedom. And yes. I thought something that might be really helpful, um, you used this phrase, and so I was excited because I wanted to ask you about it anyway. Uh, but for people who don't know, what is liberation theology? Because that's kind of a big mm. core piece of what you're doing. Right. Uh, well, uh, liberation theology is often a very hard thing to respond to because um, people sometimes uh, have already come up against that word and have, it has some connotations to it um, historically. Uh, so a lot of people associate liberation theology with uh, Latin America in the 70s and uh, the ways in which it intersected with um, communism. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of people just go, ooh, you know, that, that, that sounds like, you know, um, I don't know, like it's heretical or it's yeah, on, the, right. on the edge of what we consider orthodox, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, I never studied it. I went to Fuller Seminary and got a master's of divinity, never was required to read uh, the work of Gustavo Gutierrez, who's considered, you know, the father of liberation theology, was never required to read him or any other liberation theologians. Uh, it, it, you know, now I look back and I'm so, you know, so sad about that. I had only heard about it in these derisive ways. But actually, uh, you know, liberation theology is kind of what it sounds like. We're talking about uh, liberating narratives in scripture and seeing those as that through line from beginning to end, um, that God is always delivering, rescuing, and inviting us into that liberating work in our, not just our churches, but also in our communities. Uh, and once you, uh, to me, once once I started to see the way that liberation uh, was woven into our holy scriptures, I couldn't unsee it. Uh, it became the lens through which I saw and understood the text. And I, I think, you know, for a while I would tell people that I was a practical theologian, you know, because I want to see how scripture informs our actual, you know, living, our day-to-day -day life. Um, I had to work my way up to be able to actually say, well, if I really had to name it, I'm a liberation theologian. And I think that just came with age where you get the confidence to say, this is, this is really w what I do. <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, because some people are taken aback by it because I think when you hear the word liberation, you know that uh, I think people have a gut sense that liberation is, involves politics. It involves very concrete realities. Freedom can sound very ethereal and spiritual. Uh, but I think people get that when you say liberation, we're talking about actual structures and real change um, that's connected to these stories. So that, that would be my very cursory introduction. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, it was very helpful because I, I mean, I think you're exactly right to point that out, though. Like I know when I first encountered liberation theology, I, it mm -hmm. was used as a pejorative. And so right. um, and then I started. Uh, I'm kind of a hard ass. And so when people tell me don't read this, then I go and read <laughs> these things. <laughs> and so like, I mean, that's why I started reading Rob Bell. Someone was like, no, never read Rob Bell. And I was like, all right, well, now I'm going to go read Rob Bell. 
<laughs> no, that, that was kind of my introduction. I was like, this is beautiful. Like th there's so much good here. And, and uh, yeah, so, so thanks for that, mm -hmm. that quick introduction. Sure. Yeah. And so Kelly, can you give us a little bit of information uh, when you, when you decided to write this book, um, what did you see was a pro was the problem or essentially like, why, why did you write this book? What, what, sure. what were you trying to achieve in that? Well, <clears throat> I grew up uh, in the, well, I was born into and adopted into also a, a Catholic family. So I came, you know, to faith through in the early days through, um, you know, the Catholic church and under the wing of Mary, as it were. And uh, maybe in junior high, my parents uh, moved to a evangelical, non-denominational, spirit-filled church. And so really most of my uh, upbringing in the church was under, you know, in the, that evangelical space. Uh, and in that space, there was not a lot of room for women. It was a very gendered uh, experience. You know, women did the as I, I may often think the, that the women were the softer side of ministry, <laughs> you know, they did the domestic things. They made the church look beautiful and they helped with, you know, bake sales for fundraisers. And they, uh, they had their women's ministry where they all put on these pretty little dresses and spoke in these soft, sweet little voices with each other. <laughs> um, but they were never the ones that were in the pulpit. They were never invited to be part of the elder board. They were mm. um, not the ones who got to help with those kind of decisions that had to do with the vision and the direction of church. And um, so growing up, you know, that is what I saw as a woman's place in the church. Um, and while I saw that it was good, I mean, my mom led the women's ministry at our church for over seven years. And I saw her pour her heart and her energy into loving and caring for the people of our congregation. So I saw that what women were, you know, were doing was beautiful, but I never found it to be compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't something that I aspired to myself. Um, and I think what became, what I realized as I grew older is that liberation is really compelling. And when I recognized the women in the, in the Exodus narrative. And it took, me, it took me a long time because most of us know Moses. Maybe we know Aaron. Maybe we've seen kind of, you know, the shadow of Miriam with her, you know, uh, drum, you know, as part of the Exodus story. But really the women that have kind of been the hidden figures of the Exodus story. Uh, but once I saw them, uh, and started to recognize the work that they the work that they did and the way that they factored into the freedom story that is so foundational for us uh, I couldn't unsee them and then I just became so fixated and so over a, a series of years really of studying the text and reading other books and coming back and reading again I found they were the perfect archetype for this time that uh, as much as I grew up with Martha and Mary as the archetype for women. That was the big story that was always talked about in women's circles. And I was like, oh, but these women are so much more compelling as an archetype uh, for how we can talk about ways in which women can be involved, yes, in their families and yes, in their churches, but also in community at large. Um, and to be part of the liberation narratives just, as I keep saying it, but really, compelling, captivating. Mm -hmm. It energized me. And I thought, man, I want to share this um, mm -hmm. with others. And 
you know, really, uh, the book also kind of came to life in, in terms of its publishing journey um, in the wake of the 2016 election. Um, and so I was hearing women asking, like, can we really protest? Is that really, is, is a women's, woman's place really out there on the streets protesting? You know, and I think there was genuine question from a lot of my evangelical sisters about whether or not that was part of our legitimate purview um, as women shaped by the Bible. And so I, part of my idea to write this book was to say, yes, this is part of our purview. And at least, you know, if you feel the spirit leading you in this way, you wouldn't be out of step with our, the matriarchs of our, of our faith tradition. Um, so I was hoping that this archetype uh, would also be timely uh, for women to see other ways that they could be involved uh, right alongside our brothers um, or siblings. What is your new word that you coined? <laughs> I, I've, I actually have already forgotten. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, anyway, oh, Christ-like Christ siblingship. There we go. <laughs> siblingship. I love that because actually it's a non-gender term. So, yeah. you know, but that we were in this together and that women could say, yeah, we get to march alongside, um, you know, our, our brothers as well and be part of this work. So mm, that was part of yeah. the origin story of the book. Well, it it may not, it may come as a I wouldn't say a surprise to you, but it it it'll be in, interesting and good for you to know. As but our mm. listeners would know this about us, uh, Josh and I are ardent supporters of women uh, in all forms of ministry. <laughs> I mean, like we have we have uh, put our nose to the grindstone in that way. It's particularly in 2020, we we noticed we had had a uh, we had not done enough. Uh, on that mm -hmm. realm and we had felt convicted about that um mm -hmm. always but we just had not done enough to speak up about it um and so we began trying to do as much as we could and uh <laughs> i gotta be honest with you there are a lot of people uh that did not like that on our social media <laughs> and things true. like that uh, having arguments with us about those types of things and um sure you know it's unfortunate but um i love the idea and you know of you know a in this liberation connection with all of mm -hmm. that and, and and not just you know not you know not trying to uh, uh, attach that to these you know these latin american you know people in that way but more so this these biblical narratives yes. um and that that's really powerful yeah and it it reminds me too i i recently was um involved in this like six week intensive learning cohort like pilot program that uh <laughs> There's a thing called Jesus Collective um, that's kind of like grassrootsy right now. Um, but we did a lot of work actually talking about like liberation uh, stuff. We, we did a lot of work on racism. And the one, um, uh, one of my new friends in that group, Angela, I remember on the last day, she was just like openly lamenting about how the church and society could look different if like women were actually allowed a space at the table. And it was, it was really, that was a really powerful moment for me. Like I, uh, I played that over and over again in my head. So um, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, but so uh, with, with, the, with your book, um, one thing that I noticed uh, when I was reading it that I thought was, was super cool is this, um, you know, along with your research and your study, you also had this 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 role of like imagination or or the prophetic <laughs> imagination that seemed really to like come really handy 
to you. Can you talk about that? Because I loved it. <laughs> sure. Well, um, I, you know, I get some people who are very curious about the, the role of imagination uh, in this book in particular, uh, because, you know, if you actually look at the real estate of the text, there's not a whole lot of verses that are really giving us the life of these women. Um, and you really do have to lean in to, to kind of see more of what they actually contributed and, and to imagine what, what that was like to be in that story. Uh, and, and it was imagination that helped me to really kind of see and interact with these women. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't write it any other way. Mm -hmm. uh, but I get questions from people wondering, wow, is, is imagination really part of you know, a healthy interpretive process. <laughs> and so here's my, here's my way of thinking about it, uh, because I really want people to feel that uh, my imagining is not untethered to the, to the work of interpretation. So for me, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time um, in the text itself. So I'm one of those who I, I produce a wide line text, you know, where I print out those I, Exodus 1 to 15, I print it out um, with wide margins, um, and I have carried that wide line text with me for years in my big tote bag. It has been with me on trips to China and Uganda, and of course, Burundi, and here in the States, and then in Palestine, and everywhere I've gone for a couple of years, that book, that little workbook that I created has traveled with me. So I've lived with these 15 chapters in Exodus, um, and read read them multiple times more than, I mean, more to, I can't even count how many times I've read the narrative and in different places and in different situations where this really saturates my, my mind, right? This is the, you know, the work of learning the text, living with it. Um, I've read, I don't know how many commentaries on Exodus and all the notes are in the margins of that wide line. Uh, so I've done the exegetical work, the, the serious study of the text itself. And then Alongside that is just meditation, right? Mm. Meditating on the text. Yes, I do my research and the word studies and the you know, historical context, et cetera. But then there is just sitting with the stories themselves and listening and, and being surprised by what I would see um, in that meditation space. Um, and I mean this in the best evangelical tradition when we were taught to meditate on scripture, to chew on it, to make ourselves available to what the spirit would say, right? So I learned that from my evangelical brothers and sisters. Um, but for me, the, the, the serious study of the text and then the meditation of the text led me to the imagination being part of this process because you cannot be close to, to those scriptures and the women in that text for all those years and not start to imagine and see beyond the words and see what were they doing? What was the, what were they wrestling with? What were the, what were the conversations they had with each other? What were the curiosities that they had, that they had to go and sit with each other and figure it out? And, um, and, and to me, I, I pray that that was also inspired to some degree by the spirit, not in a canonical way, of course. I, I absolutely know the difference between um, my imagination and the holy text itself. And yet, you know, all of that imagination was shaped by years of, right, 
working with the text itself and reading commentaries and, and availing myself of the riches of this story, mm. all of that, the, the imagination is tethered to and informed by all of that. And so my hope is that it really was just the spirit continuing the work, you know, allowing me to see and imagine um, the real lives of these women in a way to crack open a, a better and deeper understanding of, of the contribution that they had to make to the liberation story. Mm. So I can't tell it any other way. Yeah. Um, other than to to share what I see in the text, but also what I what I imagine is also happening. I think that has helped me see them more clearly, and I hope it has allowed the reader to be like, "Oh, yes, of course, there would have been those conversations between them," or, um, you know, yeah. "Yeah, it might have looked that way when she was leaning into the river and saw somebody on the other side." Like, "Oh, I could see how that could have happened," right? Yeah. It, it... <laughs> And I think too, like our, our Jewish brothers and sisters have done such a better job at this <laughs> yes. than a lot of us, us you know, Christians um, have. And also too, like when I was first introduced to like these kind of um, imaginative kind of ideas, well, first I read um, Brueggemann's uh, work, Prophetic Imagination, which is a great book. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also the, I was introduced recently like within the last six months to the the ancient practice of lectio divina mm -hmm. which has been so helpful to me yes i tend to be overly analytic overly like theological to to like mm -hmm. a not helpful extreme where i keep mm -hmm. them up here in my head and don't move them to my heart and that becomes problematic so in studying scripture like even just trying to read the text, I'll just overanalyze it. And so something like Lectio Divina and bringing these imaginative practices in guided by the Holy Spirit, it really helps the text come to life and allows it to move from the head into the heart. And I think it's just so beautiful and helpful. I agree. And, and you're right. It, the, the Midrash, which is part of our, the tradition from our Jewish uh, you know, uh, friends, you know, they, they saw that the text left room for us to ask some really interesting questions. Mm. Uh, and rather than shying away and assuming, you know, oh, we must be able to explain it, they would, they would engage with the text like, well, wow, what must have happened between verse one and verse two? And, and they would have serious conversations with each other about it. I mean, that is so much of what we have when we look at the Talmud and the and, and the Midrashim is the conversations they had about what was happening between, you know, this and, you know, we hear in the story that they were married, they have kids, and then later we hear that they just got married. That does, that seems to be reversed. What was happening? Like they, and then they would have these long discussions together as a community about yeah. what was happening in there. And they saw that as part of their holy work, not to be that imagination wasn't to be suspicious. It wasn't untethered. It was totally connected to the text and within their community, but it was part of the work. And I just think that is so brilliant. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is uh, even something like, you know, I'm thinking about now getting into the systematic theology aspects of things, but you know, you think of like something like gap theory uh, where we say, you know, what happened between this time mm -hmm. in Genesis and this time and if we want to be able to explain this, maybe gap theory explains that, but mm. then that leaves so much to the imagination also. 
Um, but then I, I think about like one of the things my kids have often asked me is uh, that, you know, the, the Bible doesn't really talk about dinosaurs. I mean, I'm sure many kids have asked that question and countless adults have asked the same question. And I think that part of imaginative thought process around scripture, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, I've been on long car trips and car and road trips with friends and family before. And, you know, you're up late and you're driving through the night and inevitably somebody says, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And that leads to this imagination Yep. And it's it's one of those things where I think people have done it before, and I think mm -hmm. people have done it more than they realize. And yet, I think you know, I think like you were saying, the the fear, if you if you take yeah. it as an abstract concept, is to say, oh well, I'm not gonna, I don't want to do that because I might I might venture too far away from the text, mm -hmm. go too far off off course. But then, if you really consider, we've actually done that quite a bit. And you know, I think there are times when people say, you know, imagine that. You know, imagine what it would have been like to have been one of Jesus' countless followers. Mm -hmm. To imagine what that feels like. I don't feel like that's unbiblical. I don't feel like that is heretical. I feel like that's an, an exercise in um, just wanting to connect to Jesus a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. um, one, of my, one of my favorite theologians is Adele Albert Calhoun, um, and she's written a lot of spiritual discipline type books. And a lot of times I find that when I read her books, um, I'm put into that place of beginning to imagine where, like what it might have felt like to be in that moment. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think that's so beautiful. Uh, I, I think that it brings us closer to Jesus. And I think that that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> Um, well, I'll tell you, being, I, being, as I said, mainly raised in evangelical spaces, I was kind of taught to be suspicious of imagination mm -hmm. and I was, I was not encouraged uh, at all to have my imagination be part of what I brought to bear in my engagement with scripture. Um, that was not, I mean, the pastor could kind of do it like when he would do a sermon, if he was trying, like you said, trying to get us to imagine what it might've been like, you know, to be part of this story. But we were not encouraged to do that. Um, and there was just an overall suspicion of imagination anyways. Um, and yet, I think the older I have become and the more that I have uh, learned from the poets and the artists, um, I realize that the Spirit does such amazing work among us in that creative space. Yeah. And why would then the Spirit not, you know... Why would the spirit not play and be part of that in our engagement with the text? I mean, as long as it's tethered to that, I think yeah. it's just, um, it's been a wonderful discovery as I've, you know, matured and not allowed myself to be so scared by the dictates of others, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's very freeing. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, this is one of my husband's favorite imaginations. Okay. You'll, you'll probably love it, but he would often tell me when, before we were married, he's like, you know, when Jesus turned water into wine at that <laughs> wedding, do you think that was the first time that he, or the only time that he did it? <laughs> you know, he's like, I imagine that that was something his disciples at the end of a busy day of preaching and teaching and healing, that they would often say, okay, let's, uh, <laughs> Jesus, it's time. Nobody's looking. It's just us. But man, we need to throw some back. Can you kind yeah. of say for us? It's been here? a long day. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so like husband's holy imagination at work <laughs> i love it i love it i love it it's like or hey <laughs>
I've always I've always wondered what it was, <clears throat> what kind of things Jesus created as a carpenter, mm. and you know if you know <laughs> imagining that you're someone and you you know Jesus isn't you know Messiah he's not doing his messiahical work yet. And you go over to his house to purchase a chair or something like that. And then yeah. like, you know, 15, 20 years later, 30 years later, you look at that chair and you're like, wait a minute, is that the guy that, is that the same? <laughs> and, they, and they start to put that together, yeah. you know, and you think like, I'm, I'm never letting go of that chair. You know? <laughs> like when in that, it's obviously to a much le lesser extreme, but like when the, when the drummer throws the stick out in the concert and you're the one that catches it, you know, and you're yeah. like, this is mine. I'm never letting it go. It's of course, <laughs> a, a, a very low, uh, low comparison, of course. But um, well, you know, some people think Jesus was actually a stonemason. Have mm. you ever heard that? No, I haven't. That given the given the region um, that he grew up in, um, it was it was quite. And there's there's other reasons that that people say that Joseph was most likely a stonemason, and and mm. then that would have been the trade. Um, and when I was in Palestine a couple of years ago, uh, we, I went up to Sepphoris and Sepphoris um, has long been, talk about imagination, a, a place that I've continued to come back to in my own imaginings. But Sepphoris is just a, a day's walk, not even a day's walk from Nazareth. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, things that happened in Sepphoris obviously would have affected the local region, including Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Uh, but at some point, the Romans came through and devastated um, Sepphoris and, you know, oh, everybody would have remembered the day that the Romans came, right? Jesus and his family would have had stories about the days that the Romans came. But eventually, they wanted to rebuild Sepphoris. And, um, and so Jesus and his brothers, most likely, were part of the team. You know, that's probably where they worked. That's where all the work, all the construction jobs, all the stonemason jobs were in Sepphoris. So when my husband and I visited there now, there are all these amazing mosaics, like, um, like mosaics that you would see in Europe. It's <laughs> stunning. And I would walk through and look at these mosaics. And one of them, actually, they call, it the, call her the Mona Lisa of Palestine uh, because it really looks like Mona Lisa in mosaic. And I'm like, Jesus could have made that. Like yeah. <laughs> Jesus could have actually been this amazing master mosaic um, artist and I've always been fascinated by mosaics and I was like yeah that's my imagination says yeah that's what <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, was creating all of this and it's still here yeah. to this day <laughs> it, it could even be that you know if there's something that he made with stone that that could still yeah. exist to this day and <laughs> exactly because no we were looking no at would, the remnants yeah no one would have any idea uh, that's <laughs> see, and we're already doing that right now. We're already yeah. in, in, <laughs> engaging in that practice, which exactly. is so it's so wonderful. Um, well, I wanted to ask though. Um, so you know, throughout the book, as you as you're writing, it becomes uh, pretty obvious that without the women of Exodus, uh, that mm. there would not be a, the story of Moses, the Red Sea, uh, no liberation from Pharaoh. Um, I mean, can you kind of just give us an overview of that idea? I don't want you to give your book away, um, you know, too far, but, you know, can you just kind of mm -hmm. start us off with that? Sure. Well, you know, I, I have always loved Moses. Uh, I mean, I remember the Moses story from, you know, Sunday school and, you know, maybe some of the original connection was that Moses was adopted and I'm an adopted kid. And so that part of the narrative I felt very at home with and felt like I had this connection um, with Moses. And of course, the fact that he became, you know, the deliverer of the Hebrew people. I mean, 
hard to not be excited about the story of Moses. Um, but as I started doing a little more work in uh, thinking about adoption theology, um, you know, I paid a lot of attention to Moses' family as an archetype of the adoptive family, right? Because we see glimpses of a birth mother, we see a adoptive mother on the other side of the river, and then we even get to see Moses as, a, as an adult, as an adopted child who grows up and, and wrestles with his dual identity. But in the process of really leaning into that part of the story um, for the sake of understanding adoption, I really started to see the two mothers. So tradition would, would well, the, the biblical text names uh, his birth mother, Jochebed, and then uh, Jewish tradition gives us the name of the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, um, Espathia. And so I felt like I became really familiar during that season with these two women and what choices they made that allowed them to save this one little baby boy. And, you know, part of me wonders, again, here we go with imagining, but they, this couldn't have been the only one that they saved, right? I mean, if you figured out how to save this one, wouldn't you think, gosh, there's got to be a way we can save some more. If we can recruit some more women to be involved, you know, into this little informal Nile network we have going here, couldn't we save some more? Yeah. <laughs> but this is the one story that we're given, the story. And of course, we know why. But I think once I saw these two women, these two mothers, uh, that they pulled me in deeper to the story. Um, and then I started to see, oh, the adolescent young Miriam and the role she had to play in introducing these women and, and, and who she grew up to be. And, and then I started paying attention, oh, well, the midwives, mm -hmm. like that wasn't part of my adoption theology question, but then I started spending more time with that part of the story. And, uh, you know, and, and at one point, once you see these women, you can't unsee mm -hmm. them. And, and so I, I started to, to really recognize how pivotal they were, um, that, you, that Moses quite literally would not have lived had it not been um, for women like the midwives who delivered boys and girls alike um, in defiance to Pharaoh, that without these mothers and the work that they did that was risky and imaginative and nervy, <laughs> uh, without that, he wouldn't right also have then gone on to to live beyond you know the possible um, uh, drowning in the Nile River right he lived beyond you know that um, and of course you know being raised in Pharaoh's house and then making his way across the desert and he probably wouldn't have survived the desert had it not been for the seven sisters of Midian and it's like wow Moses really owed a lot to these women but then again so do we mm -hmm. right you start to say oh now i get it men and women together like we don't get free if we are not working and collaborating with one another mm -hmm. um and so i'm hoping that people will see that uh, we can celebrate moses but we have to do it in partnership with uh, these women because they made moses they made his life possible and multiple times rescued him <laughs> so that he could do his part of the work right yeah, can you um, talk a little bit about the the midwives mm. because they played such an interesting role and in, and their role in in defiance, uh, specifically yeah. defiance to Pharaoh, I think is really key. And it gets yeah. at I think like those earlier questions you were asking, like should women really be protesting in the streets? I think it gets at that. So, yes. 
Well, the um, midwives, so Shifra and Pua, were given their names. We're not given Pharaoh's name. Mm. We're given their name. And of course, the narrator is trying to make a point <laughs> who we should remember in this story. You know, Pharaohs come and go. We don't need their names. But these women, you know, remember the work that they did. Um, most likely, they were not the only two midwives because we hear earlier in the uh, story of Exodus that these were prolific people. They were having tons of babies. That's part of the reason Pharaoh was so nervous <laughs> is they were prolific. There was a group of, you know, kind of foreign people, you know, on the edge of the Nile who their communities were growing and thriving. And he saw them as possibly becoming a military threat. I mean, that was part of the fears, the geopolitics of the time. Um, he was afraid that all those young boys and, and men would, would end up allying with one of his um, uh, enemies and, you know, maybe posing a threat to Egypt. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he targets uh, the baby boys uh, mm -hmm. to kind of, well, there's a lot of people think different things, but I, I hear I agree with Peter Enns. I do think he really was trying to deal with the, the possibility of a, of a military insurrection. <laughs> and that's why the young men were the target of his ire. But he, um, in any event, we know that they're, obviously, if they're prolific people, there would have had to be more than just two midwives for the Hebrew people. <laughs> so uh, most likely they were the leaders of the midwifery guild. They were the leaders of all the midwives. And so, uh, which I think is fascinating when you study ancient midwifery and you see that they were uh, considered very skilled women. Um, they had much, uh, high, very high esteem in their communities mm. um, because they were dealing with life and death. Uh, they had to have some, what we would call medical knowledge, like actual skill but also the wisdom that they would have um, as people on the cusp of ushering life into the world, uh, but also comforters, you know, who knew how to comfort women as they were in those spaces of bringing children into the world. I mean, they just had a lot of credibility in their communities. Hmm. Um, so these would have been pretty amazing women, um, but they get called in to the courts of Pharaoh um, and we, see, we can imagine them standing in front of this, this um, king. Um, early in the text, he's called king before we hear that he's Pharaoh. He's king of Egypt. And he, he commands them to kill all the baby boys that are born, um, but to let the girls live. And, and the understanding was that the midwife sees and understands the gender of the baby or the, uh, you know, the male or female, right, knows before even the mother does. And so, you know, when you ascertain that it's a little boy coming out, you just quickly take care of it, you know, snap the neck, do whatever you have to do. Mother, the mother doesn't have to be any of the wiser. Mm. The baby just didn't make it, you mm -hmm. know, that's all they, you know, it was meant to kind of be a covert operation um, in, in a few different ways. And uh, so, yeah, discriminate. If it's a boy, you know, it doesn't get to live, but, but let the girls live, right? Because they're no threat to him, which is very pharaonic, by the way. Pharaohs are very fixated with numbers, mm. crowd size, if you will. Um, you know, and they're very anxious about how everybody perceives them. Um, and they always underestimate the women. So I would contend that pharaohs haven't changed much um, from them <laughs> till now. <Yeah. laughs> so, 
uh, let the let the women live, never knowing, never realizing that that was his uh, first big mistake. Yeah. But but the women walk out, and as I imagine, they immediately knew, oh, well, we can't do that. <laughs> That's not what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when they come back, I'm assuming they walk into the room where all the other midwives <laughs> are waiting to hear, like, why did Pharaoh summon you? What's going on? And you know. Can you imagine the room when they told them, yeah, Pharaoh wants us to kill all the baby boys. I mean, oh, I can just imagine a room where that is, the women hear that and go, what, what, seriously, that's what he wants us to do? It's like, yeah, but we're not going to do that. That is not what we're called to do. We're still going to deliver those babies. Mm-hmm. Boys, girls, doesn't matter. We won't discriminate. And so they, in that moment, have just now formed their first act of civil disobedience that we see in the Bible. These women organized the first act of civil disobedience because they say, nope, we aren't going to do what we have been ordered to do by the authorities. We refuse. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know how long it took Pharaoh to figure it out. When he, when he finally caught on that baby boys were still being born across the Nile, I don't know how long that yeah. took. We don't get that part of the story. Uh, but those women defied Pharaoh hmm. and they did it for months, at least months and months and months on end, if not years before he found out, um, which takes a lot of nerve. I would think if you're in their position, lowly Hebrews at the bottom of the food chain, um, you know, living, living on land kind of, I mean, yeah, you've always lived in Goshen, but everybody knows it was as long as Pharaoh was okay with it, you know, cause they were <laughs> another Pharaoh invited them to live there, but they don't have any, any legitimate deeds to the land or anything. So they're, they were in a precarious place and yet they defy Pharaoh. Uh, and then eventually he figures it out and he calls him back and asks him, what is going on? What have you done? Why, why do you continue to deliver babies? And these women look straight at him and tell a bold face lie. I mean, first of all, they use his prejudice against him and say, well, you know, Hebrew women are so different from your Egyptian women, <laughs> right? I mean, you, we all know this. Like, they just birth, like, with the, their birth story, like, the babies come so quick, we can't even handle it. I mean, <laughs> gee whiz, these women. But, you know, like, they kind of play into all of his stereotypes about these uh, animal-like, insect-like Hebrews that just can't be controlled. And they're like, yeah, see me, what can we do? But they're totally (laughs) playing him. They're totally lying to him. And uh, when they walk out, the story doesn't focus, the narrator doesn't focus on how God deals with Pharaoh. The the focus is on the women. Mm. And, And it says that God rewards the women. He rewards them with family which is, you know, would have in that time would have been the ultimate gift is the gift of, of children, the gift mm. of life that they would be able to continue to grow families. They are given a blessing from God for lying to Pharaoh, for <laughs> defying Pharaoh, for knowing that their deeper allegiance was to fear God, not Pharaoh. Mm. Um, and so I look at that and I say, whoa, there are spaces where we are called to um, defy the authorities mm-hmm. of our day when in the name of life, because we understand that we are part of, you know, uh, we, we follow the God of life, uh, that anytime we are asked to participate in deathliness, mm. um, we, we have to stand against it. We are invited, you know, to 
organize um, mm. civil disobedience uh, in whatever form it looks like to stand against the deathly ways of the empires of our day, the Egypts of our day, the pharaohs of our day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's so good. And I think that ties in nicely to this this next idea. Um, and we, we're going to want to try to tie this into some of the events that are happening currently, mm. you know, as far as time of, of we're recording this. You have a chapter later in the book where you talk about the, the seven sisters of Midian and mm. the like subtitle there is freedom through solidarity. Yeah. But can you tell us a little bit about them, the, the solidarity bit, and then I want to try to connect solidarity to the kind of things that we see happening right now in, what is it, June? Our world. Yeah, <laughs> in our world here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In our, yeah. it probably will still be some Absolutely. form of this by the time this airs, right? Absolutely. Sure. Well, I'll get us to Midian, but first, I was thinking about this last night um, as I was tossing and turning in bed. Uh, so we've just come through a handful of nights of uh, civil unrest here in the states, and the pictures coming out of Washington D.C. were particularly disturbing. Um, but also M Minneapolis the last few days and all across the country, um, we've seen this outcry um, in the wake of the death of um, George Floyd, but also Breonna Taylor and uh, Aubrey Ahmed and others. And um, we just see this, this outcry, right? And I was laying in bed last night with those images um, flickering in my, in my brain. And I was thinking, you know, it's in the Exodus narrative, we get, the, we get news that Pharaoh dies and that the people cry out, right? They cry out. And uh, as the text, as the way the narrator tells the story is, it's not that they are crying out to God specifically. You know, I always grew up thinking, oh, they cried out to God, they raised their hands and asked God to intervene. But actually the story doesn't say that. They just cried out. Like it was this, actually the Hebrew sense of that phrase is that they, it was this guttural, I can no longer hold it in. The pain has gotten to be too deep. And they finally just, Pharaoh dies. They knew they're, and they're like, something has to change in our world. And they just cried out, you know, via kra in Hebrew. They cried out. I mean, it's this very guttural, loud, disturbing cry that goes out from these people who have been oppressed and who have lost sons and who have lost family members and who have no future that is good and they cry out and I was like gosh if that isn't what is happening on the streets across our country right that crying out that we've had enough this is enough we've lost too many something has to change right and yet you know so much of the exodus story with these women had already happened you know it's not like uh, so there was this cry that happened and we hear that God hear, even though God isn't the audience, God hears the cry. He's a magnet for the cry of the hurting and the oppressed. And so we see that God steps in and, and starts to then, you know, work with Moses. But actually, think about the women had been working way before that, right? They've been organizing, as we said, defying Pharaoh and creating partnerships with one another. Um, Shifra and Pua, but then we have the, the two mothers, as I mentioned, Jochebed and Bethia, and we have little Miriam. They all have already been part of the story, doing the work, even before that, that collective cry went out in the narrative. And it made me think last night, wow, you know, I had a conversation with my parents who don't see the world the way that I do um, over dinner last night. And they, you know, 
they're like, well, who are, they're no good leaders on the other side. And I'm like, oh, but there are, you know, you just maybe don't see them and don't, don't recognize them. But just like the, the midwives and the mothers were already at work, <laughs> you know, there, there are people at work doing the justice work and the goodness work in, in these communities. And yet the cry still has to go out. At some point, there is a collective reckoning where the system, you know, that survival isn't enough, right? There has to be more of a systemic change. Um, so anyways, I was just thinking, though, that that feels like the moment that we're at where mm -hmm. the work has been happening and yet yeah. the collective cry goes out. And so God, God steps in and uh, then we see Moses ends up making his way, fleeing Egypt um, under duress, <laughs> and he ends up in the desert of Midian. Um, and he's watching, I'm guessing he makes it across the desert and he's just watching the lay of the land, sitting somewhere. Um, and you know, the men, the shepherds are coming and going, uh, cause obviously he would go near a watering hole because the desert heat water makes sense. Uh, also, if you understand your biblical tropes, you know, you always understand that wherever you see, you know, one of our heroes um, and a well, you know, at some point he's going to meet his wife because that's just the way that the, <laughs> that's, that's how it works. That's how it works. The, that's how the trope goes. That's why it's like the rom-com meet cute um, of the Old Testament. <laughs> um, so anyways, you already know, oh my God, he's going to be near a well and he's the hero. Oh, look out. <laughs> but anyways. You can see him sitting near the well and watching all these different shepherds as they bring their animals to get water, et cetera. And then, you know, a whole mob of sheep are coming and there's a lot of women, which would have been odd to have that many women and no men as shepherds, you know, uh, moving the sheep to, to get them up to the water. Um, but of course, there, some other male shepherds intervene mm. and jostle to get to the front. Um, and kind of thwart the women. Um, and Moses steps in, you know, as the deliverer, which of course, you know, that is the point of the story for the narrator. He's wanting us to see Moses stepping in as a, as a deliverer. Um, and he steps in and he saves the day. And, uh, you know, I, I, this is the point where I got a little frustrated with the narrator, narrator of the story. Cause I was like, I want to hear how the women normally dealt with those shepherds. Cause this was not the first time. <laughs> this was not the first time. This was probably a daily occurrence where they had to figure out how to deal with the men who dominated um, their industry as it were. And who, you know, always were jockeying to get to the well first and to have pride of place when it came to pasturing. And I mean, you know, you could just imagine they always had to deal with the men in their terrain and that they probably between the seven of them had different ways, you know, the ones who could out argue them, the ones who could use their feminine wiles, the sisters who were good at causing a distraction so that the others could maneuver. I mean, you know, they had to have tactics day in and day out uh, to always, you know, get water from stingy wells and get their sheep to pasture despite whatever was happening with the male uh, shepherds on the, 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 terrain and I just I really wish we could have heard a little more of their story so this is my one one of my little points where I wish I could address the narrator of Exodus and tell him that he jumped in too soon with the Moses story <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but anyways that's just my own thing um, Moses ends up um, getting invited back to the house to meet the father and 
you know, he kind of figures out that these aren't just sweet, sweet little pastoral waifs, you know, we kind of have this, I grew up with this idyllic picture of them like these, you know, on these lovely hills wearing these very romantic, you know, I don't know why I thought of them like in these little Victorian wispy garb, you know, with their little fluffy sheep, but actually, you know, they were shepherds. They would have had calloused hands. They would have had like muscles from the work that they were doing, you know, fixing all of the apparatus, right? The pen that they stayed in and lifting up the buckets of water. I like, they would have had muscles and calluses and um, they were shepherds that worked Mm -hmm. together. And there was something about that that made me see them as a force, not Mm -hmm. just these little wispy sisters, um, but actually a workforce. And, And that they would have had to learn how to work together, to actually collaborate together day in and day out um, in order, you know, to to manage their father's flock, um, the family income. And I think, you know, we just had heard that Moses had left Egypt because he was out there in the brickyards looking, I think he was looking for connection with his Hebrew kin. Mm. You know, he went out there thinking that there would be a connection and and there wasn't. they didn't even recognize him as one of them. You know, they treated him like, what is this interloper doing? Why is this Egyptian guy coming down? And what does he care about our affairs? Mm. And so I think he leaves Egypt, you know, like, wow, he doesn't have any connection there anymore. Mm. And then he gets among these seven sisters. And I think he must have just, over the days that he's visited, marveled at how they worked together and, and their connection to one another. And of course they would have invited him into the work at some point, especially when he decided, you know, that he would marry one of them, Zipporah. Um, He became, this was part of the family business. And I think they were the ones who probably nourished that understanding of this is what solidarity looks like. Mm -hmm. You thought you were going to see it in based on just kinship connections out there with, you know, your Hebrew brothers in the brickyards. But um, actually among these seven sisters out in the desert, he was able to learn, oh, this is what it looks like to collaborate. Mm. And at first they thought he was Egyptian too. I mean, that's what they said. They went back to their dad and said, wow, this Egyptian guy helped us. And yet soon enough, it didn't matter that he was Egyptian. He was part of the work. He was part of the family. And, and I think he learned from them mm. uh, what he couldn't, for whatever reason, learn in the brickyards at that time, uh, what it was to actually be partnered and work together um, yeah, that's my sense anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think about just going back to what you were kind of talking about earlier with Pharaoh and how the women uh, essentially, you know, defied orders um, in that mm-hmm. act of, um, you know, going against what was asked um, based on what was right. Uh, and then as you're talking about this to the seven sisters, you know, they're, they're just, you know, there there seems to be, like as we were alluding to and asking this question, this obvious connection to uh, what's going on today uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, the plight of people of color in our country and yeah. you know where, where they have had to fight for their right to do the things that they, that they should be able to do on a regular basis um, without any issue or question. Um, and I, and I think about that, you know, you know, as you know, for, you know, specifically the idea of saying, you know, you're asking us to kill all of these male babies. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. We're not going to do that at all. Yeah. And uh, we're actually, we're going to defy that order and we're going to, because it's just not right. It's just not, 
the the, the right thing to do. Uh, and I think about the people that are going around uh, in, you know, now cities across the globe um, mm-hmm. and standing up and saying yeah. the way that these people are being treated is not correct, is not good. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you're telling us we're not supposed to do this and we're not supposed to do that. Well, we're saying, no, we're not going to, we're, we aren't going to listen to you about that anymore. I think that yeah. there's something to be said about people that are being injured in that. Um, I think that that is taking it further than I think many would hope that would that would go. Um, but I, I I think that we would you know we would stand with people that would say you know we're 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 done we're done being told to and so there seems to be this connection um, mm. in that across I mean and I think to be honest if if we're honest with ourselves if we look at history there has been many acts of civil disobedience um the country we live in is founded on civil disobedience <laughs> going against that the the protestant faith that we all practice or many of us that are listening practice is based on disobedience it's based <laughs> on yeah i mean that's literally where this comes i mean we we are not catholic today because martin luther said this isn't right. And we're not, you know, I mean, and so I think we look at that and I, but then when it happens today, I think we say, well, wait a minute, let's just hold off. But I think we, 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 so how quickly we forget that um, sometimes that's what it takes. Um, and, 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 and I, I'm hearing that and what you're saying, and I know you're not specifically going at, it, and you didn't write the book based on, you know, a, a, like a, a civil, you know, this like the civil rights aspects of things that are that we're facing today, but there's such a connection. There's such an ardent connection. Mm. With that. Well, I mean, it's a liberation story. And really what we see is that we are in our own Egypt right now and have a Pharaoh all our own. And, um, you know, there is then the conversation, the conversation has to be then where are we in the liberation story of our day? And because at its best, this story wasn't meant uh, this story wasn't written uh, to as a one-to-one. Oh, the midwives did this, therefore we need to do that. The um, you know, the mother of Moses did this, and therefore we need to do that. It wasn't meant to say these are the only options. More than anything, it was meant again to crack open our imagination to say this is what these these twelve women show us. This is what we did in our Egypt. What are you going to do in your Egypt? Because your Egypt will be different, and it'll look different, and it'll have different social contours. But what are you going to do in in your day when Pharaoh is is dealing out deathliness, when he is separating families at the border, when the powers that be say that it is okay um, to be you know to to kill um, black people and treat them differently in the social justice justice system and to incarcerate them in different ways. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, and I think they're meant to kind of crack open our imagination uh, because there are always going to be Egypts and Pharaohs. And there is always going to be a need for men and women to then respond to that in liberative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this story remains current. Um, yeah. Sadly so, but always it's, it's quite a contemporaneous story, I think. I, th- mm-hmm. I think we, we've seen that too. We've seen people, I think, in many ways, just, you know, saying, well, and Josh and I had a conversation uh, with, with a friend that essentially was, you know, just saying, you know, well, what, what should we do? You know, what, what, what can I do? And, um, 
you know, it, there's so many resources out there. I'm so thankful for uh, the smart <laughs> and advantageous yeah. people uh, that are out there today that, you know, they have these articles that say, you know, 75 yeah. things you can do as a white <laughs> person uh, to fight against, you know, mm-hmm. so oppression of people of color. And, yeah. you know, there are literally 75 things on that list. And they aren't just, it's not just one word. It's like a 75 different paragraphs of what you can do. Mm. So helpful. Um, yeah. Because I think for many of us, you know, we are, we are essentially the person that comes to the well every day to get our water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't have a, a, a plight with the, with the midwives. We don't have right. a plight with anybody else. We just kind of come and we get our water and we go home. And no one fights with us because we're one of them. We're supposed mm-hmm. to be there. We're allowed to yep. be there. We have a right to it, but we didn't, we never have to fight for it. We just kind of have to be there and get it. And, um, you know, I think those are the people that need to stand up and say, oh, you can't do that to those people. You know, that's mm-hmm. not okay. Um, and, and, and there's, and so that's helpful for us to be able to yeah. have those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for people like you that are doing that work um, mm. along the lines for women, because I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, women are facing very similar things mm-hmm. that people of color in our, in our country face. I, I don't know yeah. that women are gunned down or killed by police necessarily for just being outside, um, but they are preyed upon by mm-hmm by many by by men and they're preyed upon in every other mm-hmm. in so many other different ways uh whether it be in the workplace or whether it be mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way if you have to make a law or a rule in the workplace to protect a specific set of individuals you can stand to say that those people are probably oppressed in some way mm-hmm. and how many workplaces have a you know you know sexual uh you know misconduct is is we we, we will not stand for that here and it's right. always looking directly at the men is how they, and how they treat women. And so if that's the, if we have rules about it, well, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we ought to start saying there's something going on here. I know Josh probably has more he wants to add, but that's just, <laughs> I, I, I'm, so, I'm so thankful for people like you that are doing that work. Uh, um, so. Well, I would invite, you know, I read this first encounter, the, the Exodus story, as I said, in Sunday school, you know, with felt boards and, you know, watercolor (laughs) pictures and children's books, right? Um, This very beautiful story told, you know, at the appropriate level for a, you know, young kid. Mm -hmm. But how important to circle back to this story as an adult, Mm. Uh, because as an adult, because of course, this story wasn't written for children, Mm -hmm. right? It was a story that was written for a faith community of multi you know multi generations but it was really it was always an adult story and i think when you come back to exodus as an adult what you recognize is this is, this story is written with the socio economic political dynamics mm. right right up front you know we have a pharaoh we have his apparatus and his the people who would do we we have the complicity of of the the nation that he overseas we we have oppressed people on the other side of the river we have like we all these social dynamics are in this story and i think it really invites us to 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 ask where am i in the story um and and for some of our brothers and sisters they are struggling on the other side of the nile their their struggle is the daily struggle for survival and um 
how do we how do we live and get our allow our kids to live beyond pharaoh's edicts beyond mm-hmm. you know the instructions to to kill him in the river mm-hmm. right that's where a lot of our black brothers and sisters are you know i have my son oh, sorry you're good did i lose you <laughs> no nope, you're oh, perfect <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys i dropped that. okay anyways you know i my both of my children that i've adopted are both um african you know, so I like, I want my son to be able and my daughter to be able to live. You yeah. know, I don't want them to die in the Nile of my day. Um, right. But we have a lot of, that's really the, a lot of what we hear on the streets in the last couple of nights is people like, wow, we want our kids to live. <laughs> we don't want them to be victims of the police. We don't want them to be the victims of white supremacy. We don't. Right. But I'm also in that story because there's also the royal house you know as one of my friends jared mckenna says we are we live in the courts of pharaoh i grew up in the courts of pharaoh Mm. and and so there's a story in there for me to say wow that's where i'm at and that's that's my social location in the story so what does that mean for me uh what what is the invitation for a light-skinned privileged woman like me in the story Um, and so i think you know returning to exodus Um, as an adult allows us to say, wow, this isn't just for our spiritual edification (laughs) in a generic sense. I mean, there also is some real political heft to this story um, that invites us to enter into that reality and say, wow, (laughs) where am I? You know, am I on the streets? Am I walking in solidarity? Am I resourcing um, these communities? You know, one of those 75 ways, what am I doing? You know, yeah. it's, um, I think it's important to return to these stories as adults and to see them for, you know, for what they are. They call us out <laughs> and call us into, I think, different kinds of actions. Yeah, absolutely. That's, man, <laughs> that's so good. Um, so uh, one last question for you. Sure. Um, what, what are some practical applications or even just the hopes that come mm-hmm. out of your work for women today and how can people Mm -hmm. like marty and i um (laughs) be allies be helpful in those hopes and those applications well uh first of all the you know the story of exodus begins the book of exodus actually begins with the names of the 12 men the Mm -hmm. 12 sons of jacob um which leads us to believe that this story is really going to be about the men (laughs) Uh, because when in hebrew when you're given 12 of anything you're meant to, in the Hebrew imagination, they would have been like, oh, 12, that, like, this is the leadership structure. We see this throughout the, um, the Old Testament, you know, there are the 12, you know, sons of Ishmael, they're the leadership structure of, you know, Ishmael's territory. There's a, right, so we, right up front, we get the 12, names of the 12 men, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the Hebrews, but then the narrator goes on, and as he writes the story, what do we see? in the initial stages, it's the 12 women, that there's this alternative structure that is operating, all right? It's the women, the leadership structure of the women. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we said, you know, they have defied Pharaoh, they have rescued and raised Moses. Um, They're going to go on to be a significant part of the plundering of Egypt as well. Um, But what we see are these two structures, these two leadership structures in operation. And I think it's important 
while I love to, what I wanted to bring to the forefront was the role of these women, the truth is it's both men and women. We need the, we need the full leadership structure and capacity of men and the full engaged leadership and participation of women for us to get free. Mm. It's not, this isn't a story really about, you know, just what the ladies do, (laughs) (laughs) right? Um, It's, it's recognizing that we contribute to the work as our brothers contribute to the work Mm. so that together Mm. all of us doing our bit, we all get free. Mm. Um, And so I guess one of the things is just recognizing that we all have a place in this story. And I'm particularly hoping my sisters will say, Oh yeah, we do have a place and we do have permission Mm -hmm. um, to just get Mm -hmm. in there and be part of what is already happening in partnership with the men in our families and churches and communities um, mm-hmm. so that we will be working together. Um, and I do, you know, I do hope, you know, all my life I learned, you know, uh, I learned lessons about spiritual life from the likes of Moses and King David and, uh, you know, right. I've learned from men in the Bible. And so I really hope that my brothers will just as readily learn from women in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, not just that this is the way that women, wow, I hope women behave this way too, that they get to be part of it. But wow, I can, yeah. as a man, I can learn from the midwives and their moxie and their defiance. Mm-hmm. Wow, I can learn from the women what it is to create unorthodox partnerships. Wow, I can learn from these women what solidarity looks like, just like Moses probably learned from them. So I'm hoping that that will also be some of it is, um, and I have found that so far to be true that a lot of the men who've already read the book, when they, when we talk about it, they're talking about, oh, I need to, I recognize I'm part of, like they get, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that they get yeah. to learn from these women too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, my hope is that we will just all be about the work of liberation, mm-hmm. however the spirit invites us into that work. Um, and for some, it's going to look very small. Um, I'm sure it looked very small the day that, you know, Miriam just stepped out of the water and introduced these two women and said, you guys talk, there's, there's a nursemaid contract to be had here. (laughs) Um, you guys like, I'm going to make this introduction and you guys take it from there. Right. Sometimes we think, oh man, the work is so small. And yet we don't have the bigger purview that it's all these little small things that then like a mosaic, right. All these little tiny disparate pieces. And yet God is working, you know, on both sides of the Nile with all of these disparate little pieces to bring together a mosaic of liberation. Right. Mm. So I would encourage people to do what, what is in front of you as little as it may seem, if it's taking food to the local food bank to deal with the food insecurity in your community because of, um, you know, lost jobs due to COVID and other factors as well. If it's, take looking in on your neighbors. If it's what, what are the small things? I mean, there are big things we could be about too, but I I would caution people to not be remiss to just do the small things that are in front of us that connect us to our neighbors and allow us to really partner with them in ways, concrete ways that matter to their livelihood. And, and the other thing that I think we often as Americans miss is, uh, you know, when we first meet Miriam, you know, she's a, She's an adolescent, maybe she's 13, 12, 13, you know, in the Nile River introducing these two women. And then we're going to see her with her two brothers moving across out of Egypt, right? Across the Red Sea. And the text 
our best guess is that she would have been probably in her 80s. Mm. This is a long story. Liberation is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Mm. And so it isn't just what is the one thing I'm going to do right now. <laughs> it's what am I willing to do and how am I willing to orient my life? Because we're looking at decades of choices that I'm going to need to make. And they may be different from season to season. What I can do now may be small. What I might be called, the spirit might lead me to do a few seasons from now, maybe, you know, organizing or doing something more, you know, depending on my community or, or how I can serve. Um, but we have to think long-term, hmm. you know, liberation is never a short-term project. And, and yeah. are we like Miriam going to be in it for the long haul? Hmm. Um, so I would, I, we do in our development work, my husband and I have recognized that, wow, we really don't know what a new initiative is until we're about five years in. We think <laughs> we do. We have all the good research. We know what we need to do. We know the communities we want to partner with to help. But there's something that happens right about the fifth year where there's some kind of, I don't know, sometimes there's catastrophic things. Sometimes there's just the way that the program develops. And right around the fifth year, we're like, oh, this is what it was meant to be. Like, it takes time for these deeper transformational works to really reveal <laughs> what they really are and how they really work. And so I think my work in development has helped me to see that, wow, liberation is long-term work. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people, you know, men and women together, we do this. Um, but definitely sisters get in, get off the sidelines. This is not just for the purview of our brothers. And we aren't just meant to bring the hot dish. We are meant to be <laughs> out there too. Um, and to do what's in front of you, even if it seems small. Mm -hmm. uh, and to recognize that this is long-term work. And the last thing I would say is that uh, for those of us that are light-skinned like me or who have some measure of privilege in our system and a benefit, you kind of benefit from others, uh, the oppression of others, is that we really need to follow the lead of our Black brothers and sisters. In this, mm -hmm. I would say in this current day, um, I would say, you know, wow, you want to be part of what's happening and know, know how to best, what part of those 75 things I should be doing follow the lead of our black brothers and sisters, right? Let, let their wisdom and their deeper understanding of what's happening guide us. And so that means for somebody like me to be willing to submit mm -hmm. to the leadership of the, Afri the black community. Um, and so if they're saying, you know, this is not your place to speak, this is your place to listen, then okay, I will listen. Mm -hmm. If they're saying, this is how you can help us best, um, can you leverage, can you amplify our voices here? We don't need you to say it as an author. We need you to share your platform with us so that we get to, okay, great. How do I do that? You know, really, um, I, I think as a person of privilege, part of what I need to be doing is taking some really good direction from my black brothers and sisters, what they really need, what solidarity will really look like for them in this moment. So, mm -hmm. yeah, well, that's, you know, we had a, we had an author on a few weeks ago named Drew Hart. Oh, I love Drew. Drew's an and awesome guy. He said, <laughs> Yes, he's amazing. I'm having a meeting with him tonight. We're doing a book study together. Oh, that's oh, so awesome. great. Awesome. And he said the exact same thing that um, for white privileged Americans and people, um, you know, maybe you get involved, um, but maybe you don't get involved trying to lead it. Maybe you get exactly. involved following the lead of others. Um, 
And, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, coming right from somebody in the thick of it, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who uh, literally puts his money where his mouth is uh, and is, he, he lives that out. Uh, but when you were talking about some of these things that ways that we can get involved, I was thinking about a few months ago, my kids and I, we, my wife and I, with our kids, we did a study on Ruth with our kids. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the really cool things about the story of Ruth is just how, um, you know, she really, you know, becomes her own woman in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I remember when um, we're, when we're introduced to the kinsman redeemer concept in the story of Ruth and um, my kids said, well, of course, when they, you know, they're, they're, they're young and, you know, they're 10 and younger. So they said, well, what's that? What's, what's a kinsman redeemer? So rather than just trying to explain it to mansplain it to them, I, well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's look it up and let, let's just read a, a definition that somebody else has written. And uh, I remember one of my kids saying, well, how come, how come the man had to be the one that saved the woman? Why, you know, she seemed like she was doing an all right job on her own. And I, and I thought, you know, that like for a child to think that way, uh, that's, you know, it, in many ways it shows, you know, like, you know, the, the, the other side, you know, again, another one of my kids, uh, my oldest, when he was, when he heard about, um, about Floyd in, in, in Minnesota and he heard about, even more so when he heard about Ahmaud Arbery, um, Mm. he said, well, dad, if you go to the store and you buy a, a dozen eggs, and somebody mixed them up and you had some brown eggs and some white eggs, the inside is exactly the same. Mm. And, uh, you know, the wisdom of a child yeah. to look at this from, and just honestly, and not, not, not to yeah. put the pun in there, but to see it as a black and white. And, you know, it is this way, you know, yeah. you know, we are the same, we are made the same. Um, and it's always so interesting to me, when we are willing to say that about people of mm. color and white people, but there are still people out there that will say yeah. we would rather have a black male preacher than a white woman preacher. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me. And I remember when Barack Obama was running for president, one of the debates was, do you, do you think our country, what, what do you think our country is more ready for a woman president or a black right. male president? And right. it was, I would almost say across the board, people said they were more ready for a black male president than a woman president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when Hillary Clinton was running for president, how many people, you know, refer to her as that woman? Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, instead of, you know, all your political bents aside, all of mm-hmm. the goodness and the badness of who she is as a person and who she is as a, as a candidate, all that stuff set aside. You know, when you refer to someone as that woman, you already put her in a position yes. of, of, you already remove the authority. You already remove, yes. you know, who she is as, as a, you know, as like someone of, Hey, this person is capable you know, of doing yes. this. Um, and so, you know, again, we try our hardest to not try to get political on our show because Josh, oh. Um, Josh is different uh, than I am about those things, but I, we're starting to be very similar on those things. Yeah. Um, so, I, but it's interesting to me when you when you talk about working together. You know, I, there's such there's there's such a correlation between what's happening today and mm. working together. Um, 
And I think, I think that's the, the desire of a lot of the men that have said, you know, mm-hmm. I realize I'm a part of the problem. I realize I'm a part of yeah. this and I want to help, you know, so how can we help? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, I love, I love seeing um, the empowerment of, mm-hmm. of women in the church. And I, I've, um, it's just, it's wonderful to me because I, it, I think about, you know, even if, if you think about Paul's letters and he talks about the, the gifts yeah. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And it never says anything about these gifts are given to men. <laughs> <laughs> right. These gifts are just given to the church. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, and Paul has in other places said things specifically directed towards women. So I don't feel like that was an overstep in his part where he wrote those things down, turned right. them in as his final project. And then after said, oh, you know what I forgot to do? You know, I forgot to say in there. <laughs> I don't think I that's- I forgot that important it, footnote. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think that's how it went. And so I think I think there was an understanding even back then, even at that time, that yeah. this is not only for one group of people. So all that yeah. all that to be said, um, Kelly, I, I've I really enjoyed talking with you today. I know that Josh has too. Um, <laughs> so um, besides traveling to Burundi, um, <laughs> where where can people find you? Where can people find your your works? How can people get in touch sure. with you? Say, like, you know, how would you like people to to find you? Well, I you know I probably of, of all the social media channels, um, I mean I'm on Twitter. Uh, but really, I am more of a listener and a mm-hmm. and a amplifier of my friends on Twitter. Uh, to be honest, um, you'll see me retweet uh, Drew Hart quite a bit because yeah. <laughs> I learned so much from Drew, uh, yeah. among others. But um, I, Instagram is really my platform of choice. So it's okay. a uh, Instagram is a fun way to kind of get a sense of you know sometimes serious things, sometimes um, family things. Lately, a lot of culinary things. I've been <laughs> cooking my way through quarantine, as it were. So if you want some great Palestinian recipes, come on over. I'll share. Um, so Instagram is kind of where one of the places you can find me on a daily basis. Um, but of course, I have two books out, which mm-hmm. you can find anywhere books are sold, be that Amazon or Hearts and Minds Books or whatever um, independent bookseller is close to your heart. Um, so my first book is called Adopted, and it, it is a, a theology of adoption, but also talks about the ways in which we belong to one another. Mm. Um, because, of course, the metaphor of adoption isn't just for adopted families, uh, because we are all adopted into God's family. So uh, there's that one. And then, of course, Defiant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's another great place to, to find me. And, of course, if you make your way to Burundi, you know, give us a call. <laughs> yeah. well, I, have a, I, have a, I have a very... A bold idea that I want to talk, talk. I want to discuss with Josh, and perhaps you once once we finish recording. So we we, we aren't going to share anything because obviously <laughs> I haven't asked anybody this. You know, it's just my mind. My, my Josh knows me well enough to know that sometimes my mind uh, uh, constructs these massively bold ideas, uh, and oftentimes they're 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 too big to actually handle. Um, but <laughs> but I, I have to get them out, otherwise they just they they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So perhaps when yes. we're done recording, we can talk about it, and then we can. We can um, but Josh, do you have any any closing remarks? No, just this this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it, Kelly. Thank you again so much for your time and for your flexibility. Uh, yeah. This has been awesome, and we've really enjoyed it. So we'll be sure. Oh, to I've live. had fun too. It's a good way to start off the day. Good. <laughs> Yeah, good. Thank you. It's much earlier for you. So Marty and I are in different time zones. So it's, 
it was like 10 a.m. for me, 9 a.m. for Marty, and 7 for you. So thank you for yes. <laughs> hanging out with us. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure. And as always, guys, go Caps. Go Blackhawks and go Burundian coffee. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs>